Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. War begets death and destruction. It also begets negotiation. Whether after the fighting ends, think World War I and Versailles, or while it continues, Vietnam and the Paris peace talks, sooner or later, the diplomats and politicians gather to define new borders, behaviors, and rules. This will eventually happen for Russia and Ukraine, and beyond that, for Russia and the West. The podcast that follows with Atlantic Council geopolitical expert Emma Ashford was recorded before Russia attacked Ukraine. That attack shattered the European security structure that had evolved after the Cold War ended. Emma's thoughts and speculation about a new security structure for Europe are even more important now than when we discussed them before President Putin chose to go to war. Please let me know what you think about this episode of New Thinking for a New World. Emma Ashford is an expert at the Atlantic Council in Washington who is deeply steeped in the political and security issues that frame the conflict and probably the solution between Russia and the West. Welcome, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with the problem. A friend of mine recently wrote that the inescapable reality, his word, is that Russia has overcome a prolonged period of weakness and now sees itself again as a great power with security interests which it will and can defend. That drives the need for a new security order in Europe. Would you agree with that? I think that's pretty much right. I I might refine it a little. I'm I'm not sure Russia ever really stopped being a great power. Um, We, for, for many years in the US, I think there's been this tendency to downplay Russia, to argue that Russia's in decline, that it's just a a country masquerading as a gas station, as uh, I think it was John McCain once put it. Um, but but the notion that Russia is just not a problem anymore, um, and you know that that is not true. Russia has always been a major power. It had this period of prolonged weakness in the 1990s, um, but but it has been rebuilding its military strength over the last decade and a half. It, it is relatively wealthy, even if that wealth is largely dependent on on oil and natural. Gas, um, and so you know, I, I liked the framing. Um, you know, a, an acquaintance of mine, Michael Kaufman, um, put it in Foreign Affairs earlier this year as Russia is a persistent power, um, and we have to be aware of that, and we have to deal with it. One of the fundamental differences that we're dealing with is that President Putin is insisting on, in sort of an old concept that we recognize a sphere of influence in his country's borderlands, whereas on the contrary, Washington and the rest of the West asserts a principle, it seems, that all countries must be free to choose their partners. Can that difference be bridged or should we just ignore it? Can we just ignore it? 
So I think that is partly a problem that we ourselves here in the West are going to have to um, resolve internally in our own minds. So, you know, there, there was this notion after the after the Cold War that we were headed for a Europe free, whole and at peace. Um, you know, and this was sort of very intrinsically tied to the notion of the end of history. The Cold War had ended. Conflict was over. Peace and liberty and freedom were, were on the rise. Um, and, and all of that was true. We've seen we've seen pronounced gains in many of those areas um, in economic growth and liberty a- across the world. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean that, you know, all the old constraints that realists highlight of, of power, of interests, those didn't go away. Um, and so where we are today is we're having this conversation about spheres of influence and whether they're acceptable and whether this is a 19th century mindset um, among among the Russians. Um, but But it might be better just to frame it as great powers have interests. Um, They would like to maintain buffers of smaller states around them. um, And they have the power to make that happen in the areas closest to their borders. And this is true whether we're talking about Russia or the United States or China, the United Kingdom when it has an empire. We're talking about the realities of power politics. And so simply saying here in the West that it's not acceptable for Russia to want a sphere of influence um, that rather misses the point of um, if we are not going to fight to prevent them having a sphere of influence, then de facto they have one. And is a value-laden judgment on our part, because clearly the people who are making that argument imply that it's a literally a bad thing uh, for them to want or to think they need borderlands. Yeah. And, um, you know, again, this is not in any way to excuse what Russia's doing, which is, you know, potentially starting a major war on the European continent for the first time in decades. Um, but, but it is to say that Russia's security concerns are understandable in historical context, right? This is a country that has been invaded, you know, its capitals taken. Um, twice within 200 years, right? The, the sieges of Stalingrad and Leningrad are in living memory for some elderly Russians. Um, and so, you know, Russia faced with a situation where the border between East and West, where NATO presence has moved a thousand miles further East from where it was during the Cold War, um, this is a security concern and it is a legitimate security concern for Russia to have, um, even if that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be happy that Russia wants to dominate Ukraine. It is in many ways just how the world works, unfortunately. Let's pivot to the diplomacy or at least the possibility of diplomacy. You've recently in your writing have talked about what you call pain points, um, which are which, as I understand, are measures that each side finds intolerable and is probably where diplomatic engagement has to start. Can you give examples? Yeah, so, um, you know, a lot of the sort of conventional arms control agreements during the Cold War, a lot of those negotiations tended to focus on, you know, numerical caps and on, you know, we're just going to take down the number of troops in Europe and that will help to resolve tensions. Um, And that's not a particularly good model for how we look at the situation today, because both sides, NATO and Russia, have concerns that are pretty asymmetric. 
right? So um, Russia's concerned about NATO expansion, um, but NATO countries are concerned about things like, um, you know, Russian buildup inside Kaliningrad, which is a small Russian enclave further into NATO territory that's basically entirely inside Poland. Um, NATO countries are concerned about Russian activities in the cyber realm, Russian meddling in elections in the West, Russia killing dissidents in, in the United Kingdom, right? These are concerns for Western states. Um, and so, you know, a, a focus on thinking through, you know, what concessions we're willing to give to Russia in terms of, of NATO expansion, um, and I think in more practical terms, um, you know, in terms of, you know, how restrictive we might be willing to be with military cooperation with states like Ukraine or Belarus or Georgia, um, in exchange for these points of, of pain where we really actually do want something, we want concessions from Russia. What do we need and what do they need in that context? So at the, at the highest level, what we all need is we need some creative thinking about a new security architecture for Europe. The um, the, the post Cold War order in Europe um, did it did a lot of good, right? NATO expansion helped to bring European states uh, in Eastern Europe into the fold. It probably helped with some economic liberalization, political liberalization, um, or at least the promise of expansion did. Uh, but what we've done is we've ended up with this extremely zero-sum security environment where states either have to choose between moving towards the West and you know integrating economically with Europe or staying in this Russian sphere and not getting any of those benefits. Um, and so Russia, in many ways, sees NATO expansion, even EU expansion, as a zero sum, that they are going to lose their connections with these states if it, if it goes ahead. Um, and Russia has, to a large extent, been pushed out of Europe's security environment. What we really need is a new framework that helps to pull Russia back into European security and give it some some rights, but equally some responsibilities the way it had during the Cold War, the way it had under you know the Helsinki Final Act, the way it did under some of the conventional arms control agreements like the Conventional Treaty on Forces in Europe that we had. So we need to find, um, you know, we can't just recreate those things. We'll need a new equilibrium, but we need to create that kind of framework that gives Russia a stake in European security so that it's not always trying to kick over the table. That raises all sorts of issues. There are institutional questions. Uh, there are map questions. You mentioned Kaliningrad um, and, and the fact that NATO literally abuts uh, Russia. So when we talk about where Russia can, can, air quotes in the word, can have its troops, we're actually talking about telling the Russians where they can maintain troops within their own borders. So how do you, let, let's separate those two sets of issues. Let's start with the map question. Um, and that's just a reality. That is the reality of what emerged out of NATO liberalization, NATO expansion rather, and the EU liberalization. Um, how do you think creatively, how, how do you creatively solve that problem? Yeah, so so the, the map problem, as you put it, the Kaliningrad problem, um, you know, the way that I think about this is just, you know, we, we dealt with this um, with East Berlin during the Cold War. It's just that this time 
the boot is on the other foot. It's the Russians that have an enclave inside NATO territory. And so, you know, again, we, we understand sort of the risks that can come with that. And but we also understand we have some you know idea how to mitigate them. So I'm not as concerned about that as I am about, you know, what, what you call the sort of the territory question. Um, and, you know, one way to frame this, I think, is back in December, when the Russians started this buildup, they sent these two um, proposed draft treaties to the United States. Um, and these were written in, you know, in very broad language. They, they were a non-starter in many, many ways. Um, but but I think it was notable that in them, the Russians basically said, you know, well, both sides will agree that they won't deploy forces outside their own territory. And that sounds eminently reasonable. Um, but when you actually look at what it means in practice, because NATO and Russia are now so close together, what that would mean is that the US would have to pull all its assets out of Europe and uh, Russia could keep doing whatever it wants in its own territory. So this is back to, again, why I'm saying I don't think some of these Cold War frameworks would work, would, would work if we just recreated them. Um, we need to think instead about some more creative ways to do this. So the Treaty on Conventional Forces in Europe, um, for example, um, had a series of concentric rings in which both sides during the Cold War could maintain certain levels of conventional forces. Um, and we might think about something like that, right? So um, dividing out segments of Russian territory um, and territory that's within NATO, um, where, you know, both sides could maintain certain levels of, of forces. And the bit that I think is going to be a particularly hard sell here, particularly in the current environment, is that in order order to get that level of concessions from Russia on what it does in its own territory, um, the US and NATO partners are almost certainly going to have to accept some limits along the lines of the ones that we used to have about permanent basing in Eastern Europe. And we've kind of got around that by calling it a rotational presence, but we'd almost have to certainly have to give up something there to get those Russian concessions. That's going to be a really hard sell in the current environment. And in any imaginable future environment because of Poland. Right. Um, you know, and again, this sort of the, the U.S., um, I, I think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job of playing a fairly bad hand in this crisis. Um, but one of the things that they are somewhat hamstrung by is Russia is a relatively unitary actor. In this crisis, um, the U.S. is managing a very unwieldy coalition of, you know, 30 NATO member states, many of whom have, um, you know, very different opinions on the level of threat coming from Russia, what the West should do about it, what the response should be if there is an invasion of Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the level of unity we've seen out of NATO has actually been quite remarkable given that. But that doesn't mean it's going to be any less of a problem in getting to a diplomatic solution. I'd push back just a little bit on that and agree that the unanimity or the unity, perhaps, within NATO has been impressive. It's been less impressive at, at the nation state level. We, we seem to have a competition for Putin's attention, people racing to Moscow back and forth. Um, and in particular, the French clearly would like this to be a European negotiation whether it is uh, the Normandy framework or some new name that they put on a framework. Um, and the Russians clearly want to talk to the Americans. The argument, obvious argument being that we are the other great power in, when it comes to security and economics. Europe is an economic power. It's certainly not a security power. How do you, 
how do you imagine the seats at the table work themselves out in, in a way that promotes solutions as opposed to just complicates the life of anybody who's trying to parse this mess? Yeah, I mean, so this is a problem that goes all the way back. I mean, you know, as early as 2014, um, you know, actually, you know, as early as 2008, right, during the Georgia crisis, it was Francis Nicolas Sarkozy that ended up negotiating some of the the ceasefire that happened at that time. In 2014, we get the Normandy format, where the Obama administration takes a back seat and lets the French and Germans run the, the peace process. Um, and, and I think, you know, the fact that Russia is now coming to the United States, it's partly this superpower to superpower thing, but it's also partly a reflection of the fact that the Normandy format had largely failed. It had stalled. It wasn't making much progress. And the French and the Germans were either unable or unwilling to put enough pressure on Kiev um, on the Western side to try and make the Minsk process succeed. And so I think that's part of the reason why Russia is trying to, again, make this US-Russia only. And the Biden administration, I think, has been fairly clear that they they think it's helpful to have European leaders like Macron engaging in separate conversations, you know, rather than it just trying to be one unified front. Um, I, I do think that if any serious deal is to be struck, though, it is going to have to be the United States taking the lead hammering out something workable with with Moscow and and maybe on the side with some of the major European allies like France, um, and then coming back to NATO and trying to find a way to make that work among the alliance. I I think, you know, the the other approach, which is, you know, you get everybody in NATO on side first, um, and then you go to Moscow, ends up with a a lowest common denominator position that, that is just never going to yield results. And encourages the Russians to keep on upping the pressure. Yes, though. As the long negotiation goes on. Yes, exactly. Um, though admittedly, um, you know, from where we are, you know, this week, next week, um, I think at this point, um, you know, it's there's not much more they can, the Russians can do to up the pressure short of actually initiating a military conflict. Um I would um, I would just say, however, that, you know, again, this has been portrayed very much as sort of a war or peace negotiation. Um, and I, I will say that I think, um, you know, even in the event that Russia initiates a conflict, we are going to have to end up talking about some kind of security settlement like this eventually. Um, and so even if a conflict happens, even if the proposed sanctions are done in response, um, even if the lines harden between NATO and Russia over this, um, I still think th- that we're going to come back to these questions and diplomatic negotiations at some point. Um, and, and if that's the case, then it would be far, far better to do it now before a war happens. Do you know leaders that sound like these? Leaders, young or old, who are changing the world? Who are not content with what is and are willing to work for what could be? If so, nominate them for the Talberg SNF Eliasson Global Leadership Prize at talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. Let's go back to NATO expansion. I can't find anyone anywhere that thinks it's a great idea, other than the Ukrainians, to have Ukraine and Georgia in NATO anytime soon, probably anytime in my lifetime. Yet we're pounding on the table about principle 
it would seem if war can be averted by agreeing not to do something that nobody wants to do, there ought to be a way to find that agreement. Is that too simple-minded? No, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I guess let me let me say sort of two things. Um, one is that the the question of Ukraine and Georgia in NATO um, has become more of a sort of it's a political statement than anything else. It's not about reality. It's not about whether these states are going to join soon. It's about um, an, an organization, a political leadership that has persuaded itself that NATO's right to expand um, is the most important political principle. Um, and I, you know, I personally have some problems with that because I think, you know, actually, if you go back to NATO's founding documents, it's not about an open door. It's about an open door to any state that furthers the security of the alliance. Those are very different things. Um, but on the, the more practical side, you know, in terms of can we just promise NATO won't expand to Ukraine and Georgia? Um, and that will appease the Russians. I do think it is too late for that. Um, I think it would need to be far more practical than um, than a simple promise. We need some way to credibly commit that that's true. We need some way that, that the US administration, that the European leaders can commit their successors 10 years down the road to that. And so that's why, again, I would argue in favor of thinking about conventional arms control, limits on cooperation with Ukraine or Georgia or other states, you know, ways to de facto shut that open door that are verifiable, that the Russians can see it's happening, um, but not necessarily just this political promise. As I listen to the daily drumbeats out of Washington and Paris and Moscow and everywhere else, uh, including our frequently unnamed senior policy advisor in Washington. Um, there's a continual insistence that Russia is the aggressor and the West, Western intent is defensive and peaceful. So th those are the sort of caricatures. And I suspect it doesn't look that way from the other guy's perspective. And it got me thinking about Kennedy and Khrushchev and, and their negotiation over Cuba. And they spent an enormous amount of time yelling at each other about the, whether the missiles that they were talking about in Turkey and Cuba were offensive or defensive. And it depends where you sat, whether you thought they were offensive or defensive. Kennedy and Khrushchev found a way to get beyond the words and, and, and the caricatures. How do you do it in this case? It's tough. I mean, this is one of the classic problems of, of international relations scholarship. You know, so defensive realists, um, liberals, lots of people argue that, that the, the main problem that causes wars um, is a security dilemma. That is to say, what one side thinks looks defensive looks offensive to the other side. So they ramp up their military in response and you end up in this vicious cycle of spiraling down into conflict. Um, and I, I think there is a strong element of that to this crisis. Um, the, the only way that we really know how to defuse that kind of crisis is for for one side to blink, but more realistically for both sides to back off a little and try and find of a way to mitigate that risk. And so again, you know, people tend to think of Cold War arms control as, um, you know, it's the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, it's START, it's SALT, it's all these high level nuclear arms control agreements. That's not how it started. 
after the Cuban Missile Crisis, after Kennedy and Khrushchev almost blew up the world, but didn't quite blow up the world, um, they started a much lower level series of confidence building measures, things like um, exchanging information about military deployments, um, some you know low level conversations between the Soviet military and the US military, um, things that eventually led to higher level arms control. Um, and I think where we where we are with Russia now is that we need to start again from the bottom. You know, this isn't about the Biden administration six months ago doing these, you know, strategic stability talks where we're going to talk about high level nuclear arms control. We have to go back to square one. We have to go back to that bottom level. We have to try and rebuild some confidence and trust on both sides. Um, and if we can do that, then maybe we can get to the bigger questions eventually. I mean, the problem is, you know, and again, this is something we've seen in history over and over. It's hard to begin that cycle, um, the, the virtuous cycle rather than the vicious cycle. Um, and even once you start it, you can fall back into that conflictual situation if you're not too careful. One of the complicating factors is China which is to say that we've been talking about a European regional situation, uh, whereas a lot of arms control issues are thought about at the global level, uh, that complicates things. The role of China in this uh, is unclear. Uh, we just saw the, the presidents of the two countries together at the Olympics uh, recently have absolutely no idea what agreements, deals, desires, et cetera, they have. Um, is it possible to remove whatever solutions evolve from that more global China-inflected issue uh, and keep it at a regional level? Is it necessary? And, and, and if so, how do we get there? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm not a, a nuclear arms control specialist, but I, I will say that I actually think one of the benefits of this crisis forcing us to think about these issues on a regional basis might be that the debate in Washington can pull back from the notion of globalizing arms control agreements, um, which was very prevalent under the Trump administration, um, to the notion that we can have regionalized agreements again. Um, after all, some of the Cold War arms agreements applied only to the European theater. Um, and I think that is a good way to think about approaching this because we, you know, we know that the problem with bringing China into global arms control agreements is that their arsenal is so small that it's, you know, we, we simply can't manage the same agreements. And this has been a real barrier to arms control for the last four or six years. Um, so coming back to just a regional focus with Russia um, on the European theater might actually be helpful in moving towards uh, nuclear arms control. On the, the China question more broadly, however, um, I do think this is one of the big unanswered questions right now that, that we, you know, nobody in Washington knows, I don't know, um, what China is going to do if Russia actually invades Ukraine. Um, and China has, for a number of years now, played a, a very smart hand where they don't openly challenge US sanctions regimes. You know, they maybe fiddle around the edges, but they don't challenge them openly. Um, Russia, if Russia is suddenly slapped with extremely uh, harsh sanctions for an invasion of Ukraine, that may force the Chinese choice on the issue. Um, and 
I bet Chinese policymakers aren't 100% sure which way they're going to jump yet. Um, but again, this could have serious consequences for the US more generally, for our sanctions policy globally, um, for our, our power and power projection globally, and for how we handle China going forward. So even though I'm saying on the arms control question, confine it to Europe, I think we would be, um, it, it's very foolish to assume that China won't play some role in the aftermath of potential invasion. Let me go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago as perhaps the final question, uh, zero sum. A lot of the thinking, certainly most of the speeches about this issue sees it as a zero sum security question. You mentioned in passing that it's also sort of positioned as a zero sum economic issue, um, which guarantees then that there are no solutions because you, you raise the stakes dramatically. And there's been a bit of that in the Ukraine background when they there was a bidding war. Would they join? Would they join the EU? Nor did they get paid more to stay uh, engaged with with Russia, which a lot of sins were committed at that moment that we're now realizing the consequences of. How do you get out of that zero sum mentality? We've talked about security. How do you do it on the economic side? So the Rand Corporation had a great report that actually came out a couple of years ago, well before this crisis, um, that, that talked about this dilemma um, of zero-sum approaches to European security um, and, and to some extent the economic question. Um, and, and they argued that it's not just about Ukraine, right? It's about you know Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, Moldova, Azerbaijan, the, these states that don't belong to the Western security and economic bloc, um, they want economic ties with the West, but they don't want to just cut ties with Russia in most cases. Now, in the case of Ukraine, um, that was true till 2014. Now it's far less true after after the Russian invasion in 2014. Um, but for, for most of these states, they would like a more flexible arrangement. Um, and thus far, you know, the European Union in particular has been pretty resistant to that idea. There's there's an, a, a potentially apocryphal story, but that the Putin spoke with the head of the European Commission just before the 2014, um, so, sorry, before everything went south in 2014, um, and said, you know, we want to talk about ways to maintain our trade with Ukraine, even if Ukraine accepts this association agreement, um, and but also said, no, we don't talk about these things with third parties. Um, so, so what is needed is a little more flexibility. And, and the good news is that while the EU is hardly known for, for its flexibility, in reality, they actually have a lot of experience with these kind of, you know, gray areas of trading with countries that have small bordering regions that might be engaged in conflict. So the EU has a lot of experience, for example, after the conflicts in the Balkans of finding ways to sort of build trade ties across borders using things like special economic zones, um, while not fully admitting countries into its block until much later. And so I think the toolkit is there if there is a willingness in Brussels to try and, and use it. Um, and while I, I don't think that would form the basis of any security deal that we're going to see between the West and Russia in coming days, um, that is also a core component of resolving the broader standoff. And, and it's something that longer term, I think the, the European Union in particular is going to have to think about. It's an important point because part of the problem with the Cold War framing of this is a tendency to say you're either on my side or that side. And so we don't want to allow, certainly don't want to encourage 
people to be able to move back and forth between 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 the blocks because we're thinking in block terms again, uh, which is silly and not helpful. Uh, as you've said, regardless of what happens in the next days and weeks, sooner or later, there will be a negotiation, whether that negotiation is after the calamity of actual war or in place of the calamity uh, is yet to be decided, but we need to explore these concepts. So thank you for both your comments and the work you're doing on these issues. Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully the next time we speak, things will be uh, in a better place. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.